that there are moments when we need to just let him, the spirit, take us over. So one last time, and, and if, if I can make one suggestion, take this moment in reverence. Here we go. it's in the deepest place of our heart this morning that we invite you in we don't even know what all that means Lord I don't know what entails of your spirit I don't know what's required but I just know that that, that we and you need to be closer together Lord, you say deeper still, and, and we just received that this morning. We don't have to understand it. We don't have to have a, a theology behind it. We're a bunch of broken people, Lord, and you're fixing us all up. And that we know. We regard you this morning as King Jesus, the highest of highs. And we exalt you, Lord. And everybody said, amen and amen. Thank you guys so much. You can be seated. You're weirding me out. I told the first service, this is kind of crazy for me personally. Uh, in 2010, 11, I was a member of a church called Easis, and we were downtown in this old warehouse building for some of you old folks, you guys, my my lifelongers, you remember what those pews were like with some orange and some red. Even some of the reds didn't match. <laughs> my responsibilities had grown at ESS. I was just helping out with a with a middle school ministry. Uh, Jen Ketterman was the leader, which 
means nothing to some of you and a whole bunch to the rest of you. <laughs> uh, they gave me a key to the building. That was it. That was my reward. I didn't have a car at the time. I was kind of a crazy guy for Jesus and had no money, had no job. Uh, but I had this key. I woke up early. It's dark. It's cold. Before the lights were on, and I walked into that darkened sanctuary. Nobody was in the building but me. And uh, to some of you, it just looked like a warehouse. But to me, man, it was it was a sanctuary in in the deepest meaning of the word. And I walked up and down that center aisle, and I prayed, and I screamed at the top of my lungs. And it was that day I recognized the fact that I was a rich man. I wasn't rich because I had stuff. I had to call up a buddy and get a ride home after. <laughs> I was rich because I was now a part of something. I was a part of a people that were that were going somewhere. And we weren't just claiming that and not doing anything about it. I knew that I was a part of something and I knew that we were going somewhere because I was once the people or the person that wasn't a part of it. That wasn't going anywhere. And by the Lord's grace alone, he sort of swept me up into this river that is that is his church, that is his body. And to think from that day long ago that I would ever be here, I've had the opportunity to teach and preach in front of thousands of people and none people, but I've never taught a Sunday service in my home church. And it's just an, uh, an unspeakable honor to be able to do so. So that has nothing to do with you or the sermon. I just needed to share that. <laughs> Uh, for Christmas Eve, it was a blast for those of you uh, that were here. I hope you enjoyed it. We kind of stripped the set down. It wasn't a real elaborate production as, as history at Eastus would prescribe. It was a it was kind of a cozy Christmas. I used the word in the first service. I said it was kind of snuggly. The lights were down. School song, Johnny sang, and all of a sudden it was like really Christmas. Uh, so I hope that you guys enjoyed your time. For those of you that weren't here, I don't know. Hope it was good for you. You should have come. Bah, bah humbug. <laughs> Let's go ahead and, and just get started here. Um, we'll pull up the slides. I am, is Zerubbabel, and so am I. Zerubbabel is a character in the Old Testament that is marvelous. He is um, extraordinary. He is a character that is overlooked by many because his name's kind of weird. I just want to know how he said his name in kindergarten. Hello, my name is Zababel. Too many bees to be like a real word. But we do that so often in the Old Testament and in Scripture alike. Unless it relates to us directly. Jesus on the cross. Or uh, some of the things in wisdom that Peter or uh, Paul, if you will, prescribed to us through the word. We read it and then we can receive it because we can directly relate it to our life. I have been a bad person. This scripture helps me. Now I cannot be a bad person. But Zerubbabel, what does he have to do with me? Specifically, what does the Old Testament have to do with me? We get into the book of Leviticus. And you, you, those of you that have ever tried to read through the Bible, you kind of wear it like a badge of honor. Yeah, read Leviticus today. People are like, wow, what a scholar. Because there's a disconnect. What does is, what is Leviticus or Zerubbabel have to do with the cross? We, we read the, the New Testament or the Gospels. We hear about this character, Jesus, and all that he was, and that he died on our behalf. And we get to that 18th, 19th, 20th chapter of the book of John, and we hear him die on the cross and raised from the dead, and oh, your heart just pours out. He did this for me? 
And you see uh, Christians all over the world kind of fall to their knees or, or when those uh, services or those scriptures are ever preached, people cry and it's like, wow, we're really good preachers. That's like the easiest thing in the world to preach. But we don't want to touch on things like Zerubbabel. I believe that the entire scripture is important. And in fact, the entire scripture points to, points to one thing. More specifically, one person. That every word throughout all of scripture, every date, every phrase, every letter relates to Jesus. Some would say, Beck, how do you know that God wrote the word? I would say, well, it was inspired. Well, who actually pinned the word of God? Man. It was man and God. And they think, they say, I gotcha. It was, it was man that pinned the word of God. Therefore, it has to be flawed. Now, I want us to take that piece of information, and this is what's going to drive the sermon today. But before we do that, there are a few foundational principles that we must agree on before we can go any further. There are going to be some phrases that come up on the screen. And if you believe in the statement that's on the screen, all I want you to do is raise your hand. Don't lie, you're in church. That's like how lightning stuff happens. If you believe what's on the screen, I want you to raise your hand, but make sure that you do so. Okay, here we go. Here's the first one. God is the author of the Bible. Believe that to be the truth. Good. Some people are like, mm, I don't know. Others in boldness, hands like way high. The second statement. God cannot lie. But God can do all things. God can do anything. There are laws that God's, God puts himself under. If he's going to be the truth and if his promises are sure, there are some things that if he does certain things, he cannot do others, including lie. If those two statements are true in your heart, and I didn't manipulate you, I haven't like twisted your arm, said you are stupid if you don't believe these things. If you believe those two to be true, then you must believe for this to be true. Oh, I don't know how that got. <laughs> Oh, dear. There is one Oakland Raider fan in the room, and I am he. <laughs> oh, no, we have two. Bible says, blessed is the meek and the poor of heart, and therefore we should all love the Raiders. No, that was stupid. <clears throat> bad joke. Okay, if you believe the first two statements, and you got through the bad joke, then you must believe this. If God wrote the word, and God cannot lie, therefore the word cannot lie. Seems like a foundational truth. But is it true that in your own heart you have read portions of the scripture and just skimmed through them and that there are other portions of the scripture that you have, man, really dug into, have affected your heart? How come some true is like really cool and other true is not? We believe that the Bible tells us, oh Lord, the Bible tells us about Jesus in some portions, but it has power to it in other portions. I have come here to tell you today... That the Bible, the Word of God, the very power that is Him, is in fact Jesus from cover to cover. When they talk about Moses, they're talking about Jesus. When they're talking about the temple, they're talking about Jesus. When they're talking about fasting, they're talking about Jesus. Everything is pointing towards the gospel. Pharisees for thousands of years combed through the Old the Testament, the Pentateuch, and, and, and they were trying to find what God was trying to communicate to them. And then Jesus comes, dies on the cross, and raises from the dead. And when we use Jesus as our filter, we read the Old Testament, and all of a sudden we see him. He is the key that unlocks the mystery of the whole word. And we start to look at this Bible that sits in our lap a little differently. Here's a quick test before we get started. 
Was Jesus God or man? Both. The answer should be yes. Is the word pinned? Was it written by God or man? Both. It's not a book about God. If you demean a a certain portion of the word, you are demeaning God himself. And I'm not talking about, we're going to exalt the Bible, don't do anything, just read your Bible, or you're no good at being a Christian. We don't do anything when we do that. But if Jesus himself were to stand before you and speak to you, would you receive that word? With fear and trembling, you would. Why don't we care and take the same reverence to the word of God? Because it is in fact him. The mystery that was God and man came to the earth and prescribed or gave to us not only salvation, but power. And power through the word that sits in your lap. And I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to prove it to you through like an obscure Old Testament scripture. We are in the second chapter of the book of Haggai. We're in the last three verses. That's two, uh, <clears throat> Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. It says this. You can read along with me. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms and of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and the riders will go down every one by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheetel, my servant, declares the Lord. And I will make you like a signet ring. Everybody say signet ring. For I have chosen you declares the Lord of hosts. The word Jesus is not in, found in these scriptures. Any like direct foresight or prophecy saying we are going to prophesy about a savior to come is not in these scriptures, but I'm telling you, he's in every word. Let's start up back at the first verse, Haggai chapter 2, verse 20 says this, when the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month saying, and we'll stop right there. This is the second time that Haggai spoke to the people on the same day. If you read back in chapter 2, it says on the 24th day of the ninth month, Haggai spoke. And that was Alex's uh, sermon last week, where we have concluded, we've counted the cost of what God has, have to, has had to offer us, and we have concluded this, that he is going to bless us. That was last week's sermon, and that comes out of the first uh, word from Haggai. You can think about it like this. He gave a word, he went out on a break and had lunch, and then he came back the same day and gave this word. And it says, on the 24th day, he said, whatever he said, we'll get to that in a second. What's interesting is that we haven't even moved through the first sentence, and Jesus is already seen in the words. The 24th day of the ninth month, not September 24th. In this time in history, they operated on a different calendar, God's calendar, if you will. The 24th day of the ninth month in God's calendar, the year 2015, would be December 7th. Which is interesting that we would choose a book months beforehand and we would get to the end of the book nearing the same time. This is also parallel with a a tremendous Jewish holiday. You might have heard of it before. It's called Hanukkah. Hanukkah means the day of dedication. When they dedicated a time when a, uh, a people, the, uh, the Hebrew people, God's people were outcasted from Jerusalem. They were brought into captivity for a second time. And their temple was crumbled. And then when we get to this book in Haggai, Zerubbabel and his people are released to go to Jerusalem and build a temple upon the old one. Maybe you could say it like this, a new Jerusalem. 
They were brought to a place where they could take the dwelling place of God's spirit and so that man could unite with him once again. The day of dedication. Now, Hanukkah has a, a tremendous history outside of that, the Maccabees and, and menorahs and all the rest of it. But the first day of dedication is when man and God could finally find a place to reunite. Now, that's interesting. I think I know another place in Scripture where a man who had no place to unite with God found a Savior. And he rebuilt Jerusalem. And he made a way for man and God to finally dwell together. His name was Jesus. The Lord is sovereign over every moment of your life. Every second where it seems lost. Every uh, turn in the road when you don't understand quite what's happening. There are times in your life when you're going to look up and say, How did I get here? Why is it so bad or hard or, or, or whatever the case may be? But what you cannot say is that the Lord is absent from there. He is sovereign over every time. Doesn't mean that in every time of our life we've not been sinning or we've been close to God, but he does not leave us. He's in the midst of it all. That's the first point. The setup, the second point, I love this, is the setting up and the shaking down. Verse 21 says this. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. 22. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and their horses will go down every one by the sword of another. This is the second time that Haggai has talked about shaking the heavens and the earth. The first time he was talking about a blessing. And the second time he was talking about this overthrowing of governments. Well, even in that verse, I know of a man who was born and blessed the world on a Christmas morning in a stable. And then the second time he changed the entire world, he broke the temple down, the veil from the top, and he rose again three days later. There's two shakings in both the story of Jesus and in the story of this temple. And I hope you're starting to see this message take form. That Jesus is not only in every word in scripture, he's in every part of your life. We just have to look. What's this chariots and horses business? Why would he use a way to say, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take this government away from you that's, that's overthrowing you and condemning you. Why would he say it this way? If you were a good Hebrew boy, you would have certainly heard um, the stories of a man named Moses who took a people in captivity. They were slaves in Egypt and, and, and freed them. The Lord used a man called Moses to do so. Now, if you read Exodus 14, that's sort of the peak of the story. I'll lay the scene for you. Uh, this nation of Israel, they were slaves. They weren't called Israel at that point, but they were slaves to Pharaoh and the uh, kingdom of Egypt, which is the most powerful world force at the time unconquerable, massive. They decide they're going to leave. Moses is raised up and he brings about three, a little over three million people, men, women, children, in the middle of the night. This was not like a well-organized affair. They were running um, and not very fast. They, they didn't have time to even prepare their bread. And so here's this massive mob of people trying to escape the largest known force in the world. They get their backs up against an ocean. And the other side of the ocean is their freedom, but it's, 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 it might as well be a million miles away. There's no way that even one of these men is going to be able to traverse or swim this ocean. 
their backs are against the wall. And what's coming after them? Pharaoh had sent choice horses and chariots to slaughter these people, to bring judgment for trying to escape. And their backs were against the wall. And out of nowhere, by faith, Moses raises his staff. And God makes a way where there's no way at all. And these people, it's like the classic story of the tortoise and the hare. How does that tortoise always win? They're walking across this ocean on dry land. And here comes choice horses and chariots. And they're swept up in the flood. God not only freed a people, but then he took the opposing force that brought judgment down upon them and he eliminated it. In my life, I was backed up against an ocean or a sea of my own. And all of us were. And there was a force called judgment. My, I had made my own bed. I tried to escape a government and authority in my life that was way bigger than me. And I had been chained to it my whole life. And there was nothing I could do about it. And then out of nowhere, I realized that God had made a way where there was no way. He saved me. But he didn't just save me where the darkness of my life is over here and now I'm safe away over there. He eliminated the darkness in my life. And he did the same thing for you. So here's these people, and Haggai is speaking to them. He's speaking to Zerubbabel, and he's thinking, Grandpa told me about this. I've heard of this story before. Is he going to do the same saving to me that he was going to do to them? It gets better. Because not only does he set up and he shakes down, he calls Zerubbabel something specific. If you see it, he says, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatel, my servant. Zerubbabel is an interesting name. Zerubbabel. Because E-L is a good Hebrew name. You would want that as a young man. E-L at the end of a name meant God. Alright, God has blessed my name. But the Babel kind of messes the whole thing up. If I was teaching like a first grade Sunday school, and I said Babylon, they'd all go, boo. He's the bad, this is the bad town, this is the bad side of the city, if you will, in the scripture. Well, how is God going to choose somebody with such a poor name? My name's Beck, which is like not the coolest name in the world, at first glance. It means man who stands by a river, which to most people would be like, wow, that's cool. Compared to Alex's name, Alexander means conqueror. Conqueror and a man hanging out by a river. (laughs) Oh, the wonders we will do. Zerubbabel means born in Babylon, born of Babel, which is a foreign land. He wasn't from there. We know this because Zerubbabel is of the same bloodline as David. He has royalty flowing through his veins. He's a slave in a foreign land, but he's of royalty. David is of the same bloodline as Jesus. And somewhere in between the two is this little unknown figure, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. So he is a son. He calls him a son born in a foreign land. Then he calls him a son, and then he calls him a servant, but he's of a royal bloodline. We just celebrated Christmas, which is the birth of Jesus, who is from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, where Herod wanted to eliminate him. You could even take it a wider scope. The man of God was born in a broken earth. He was of a foreign land. He was a son and a servant but he was of a royal bloodline. 
Now, let's get to this signet ring business in verse 23. This is one of my favorite verses in all the word. It says, on that day declares the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts means general or, or Lord over armies, specifically Lord over armies of angels. And I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. What's a signet ring? What does that have to do with this scripture? And then what does that scripture have to do with us? A signet ring is in fact a ring you would wear on your hand. And it would be a representation from a king or a kingdom that you had authority in that land. So you would travel into another place and you would show the signet ring. And they that would mean they meant business. Often you see signet rings stamped into envelopes. The official seal. That ring would have some sort of a an engraving on it or a picture or would say, oh man, this came from somebody. They didn't have the licking envelopes. I just got married. Thank you cards. Man, we need to get rid of that tradition. It should become just unpolite to send thank you cards. That's my vote. They would put the seal on the ring, but it represented two things. If you had a signet ring, you had two things in your power and I call them badges and checkbooks. I like movies, law movies. You ever seen that guy like flip out the FBI badge? I think that's super cool. But the badge doesn't do anything. It's a piece of leather and a piece of tin. It, it has no power in itself. What does the badge mean? Why do criminals stop in their tracks when they see, or they should anyway, see that badge of the law? It's not powerful in itself, but what is it, what it is attached to, what it represents, says this, if you mess with me, you mess with all of us. There's an authority. If you trespass against me, you come against the whole kingdom. The second thing that a signet ring would represent or give you power to is the checkbook. My dad's a little old school. He does the checkbook thing, keeps it in his back pocket. Uh, some of you are like, what's a checkbook? <laughs> a checkbook in, is a piece of paper, and it's not specifically valuable in that it has gold woven in it or some sort of currency to it in itself. But what the checkbook does is give me access to my dad's entire account, everything he has. If I had a signet ring, maybe you could say it like this. I was carrying power and authority from the king. Now, what's, what's, what's remarkable is in the scripture, he says, I'm not going to make you a signet ring that you can wear. He says, I'm going to make you a signet ring. If I had a signet ring myself and the ring fell off of my hand and I go into some foreign land and I say, I'm a representative of the king, they would laugh at me. Because I have no power now, because I have nothing that represents that power. They probably wouldn't believe me. I swear, I have a signet ring, it's at home. But if, let's say, a homeless boy picked the ring up and put it on his hand, he now has the authority. The ring itself never loses authority. It is the representation of power and authority. It was just a piece of metal that was molded in such a way that it would forever give the impression of the kingdom it represents. Zerubbabel is going to make an impression on the world's history that will never go away. And I have come to say that I believe we are also signet rings. Let's do a quick comparison. Recap in Revelation. If you hadn't picked this up by now, Zerubbabel, born of a royal blood in a foreign land. Son of David, under Jesus, uh, born in Bethlehem. They were both servants. Uh, both chosen to construct a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. That's Zerubbabel chosen to build a temple. God, of course, would be, or Jesus, of course, would be the temple. They were both given power and authority. Interestingly enough, if you really like to dig into the scripture, 
It says that Jesus, throughout all the prophecies, said in order for it to be fulfilled, he had to be a priest and a king. Well, that doesn't happen in Jewish history. There was tribes that did separate things. Um, and priests and kings never kind of crossed paths. He was a, oh, a royal priesthood. If you go to chapter 1 of the book of Haggai, it says that there were two people charged to build the temple of God. One of them's name was Zerubbabel. He was a governor of the royal bloodline of David. And the second was a guy by the name of Joshua. More literally translated, Jesus. And he was a Levite or a priest. There was a king and a priest that was required to fulfill the prophecy to build a dwelling place where God and man could one day reunite. It's just amazing that in every line of scripture, he's not talking about Jesus. He's foretelling what Jesus is going to do. Okay, Beck, I get it. Uh, Jesus is throughout all the scripture. He gave me a ton of information. You spoke way too fast. But what does that have to do specifically with me? You said at the beginning that you believe that the word of God did not lie. You believe that it was in fact the power of God that sat in your lap. You said that. Well, this is what the word of God says about you. While we read this scripture, I'm going to have the offering taken up here. Worship band, you can make your way nice and slow. First Corinthians six nineteen through 20. This is Paul speaking. And he says this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Jesus is not only in every word in Scripture that um, his moment on the cross doesn't only unlock all of traditional biblical history. The very power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in your mortal body. Or, this is not true and I don't have to preach this anymore. We have to come to a place where we reconcile ourselves not only with the truth that if I believe in Jesus, I'm going to heaven, but that we reconcile with the truth that because I believe in Jesus, He's in me and the very same things that He did on the earth, He can now do in and through me. And we all got closets and they all got skeletons. And underneath those skeletons is the real dark, hard stuff who hurt me way back when or the who I just believe that I am or the what the past has done to me that I just have to carry with me. I'm a Christian, but this is just a part of it. We all have baggage. What part of Jesus' life carried baggage? Man, he healed up the whole thing. And that is either a truth that we can reconcile ourselves to today or the whole structure that is Christianity falls in on itself. We believe that, okay, we're going to heaven. I've received the gospel. Now I am a Christian. But that's not the whole story. He said that he came not only to give us freedom, like uh, the, the, the nation, or the, sorry, the Hebrew nation trying to flee Pharaoh, but that they would receive a power inside of them. That he would make you not only a son and daughter, but he would ask you to do a work. He would ask you to do a work of his body. The Bible says that Jesus is the temple. We think that we need to be the temple and, and we shouldn't smoke or drink because Jesus is in us. That's all true. But he is the temple and we become a part of his body when we enter into communion with him. 
that we get to dwell in the very presence of God because of what He paid for. And all that He did and all that He had to do and all that He had to overcome, all that got us was heaven someday? That's not the truth. I'm telling you, here today, the weird and hard stuff in your life, you can come to reconciliation with Jesus and He can clean it up right here. And then watch this. You can go do that for somebody else. We get blessed by the Lord in such a degree that we can become a blessing for somebody else. Let's bring the offering up. I'm going to pray and then we'll finish this up. Lord, we we thank you and honor you. We lift your name high in praise. And we ask that we would give freely today, not out of obligation, Lord, but that we would get an opportunity to return any level of blessing that you gave us. Lord, I pray that every person in here would seize that wonderful chance. In Jesus' name, amen. So the point of this, the point of this scripture is simple. For those of us that have been dealing with certain things in our life, and we've received the gospel and we know who Jesus is, but there's just a part of us, man, that's not, it's not getting done. I'm going to invite you to come up to the altar to reconcile yourself with the power of the truth. I don't want you to come up here and get something. I'm sorry. I don't want you to come up here and leave something. Oh, I messed that up. Where often we go down, we take our sin, we lay it on the steps of the altar of the Lord and we walk away without it. I want you to come up here and I want you to receive the whole power of the gospel. You may have done this a hundred times. That's okay. Because the truth is, the body of Christ can't do it without everyone. He offered this to everyone. My prayer today is that if you haven't received the whole gospel in your heart, you may have heard it, you may be able to teach it, but have you received it? That there is power beyond heaven and that power sits right behind your heart. In a second, I'm just going to ask you to come up to the altar. Now, there's some of you here that think to yourselves, I can't receive that power because I don't know if I've ever received Jesus. How cart before the horse situation. If you're that person in the room, I want to let you know that's okay. That decision can be made right here and now. And it's the best decision you'll ever make in your life. Jesus died on the cross and he raised raised from the dead as a free gift. That's all salvation is. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. There's nothing you can do that will get you to heaven. The Bible says that one sin removes us from heaven. We think that we've done a good job. One bad thought, one um, spiteful word, all of those things are imperfection. God wants to commune with us. He wants to spend time with us. But he can't because if we imperfect people join him, he becomes imperfect. This was a problem and he solved it. He solved it by sending his son to die on the cross and raise from the dead. He'd been telling people about it for thousands of years that he was going to save the world. And he did it. And he said, all you have to do is receive it by faith. Faith is not, hey, a bunch of, I've read a bunch of books. I know what's going on. That's not faith. Faith isn't, I feel super good today. Message was awesome. I hope it was. I have faith now. Faith, true saving faith, is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation. It's Moses saying, I'm going to stand at the end of the water and I'm going to raise my staff high and I don't know why and this doesn't make sense, but he asked me to do it and I'm going to trust him. And all of a sudden, man, the whole world changes. That's true saving faith. If you've never made that decision before, if you've never come to Jesus in that way, all I want you to do is transfer your trust to him and then let us know that you've done that by raising your hand. 
Anybody here? Okay. Now, if you have received the word and you believe, you know what? It's time to just get the whole load. It's time to let the Lord lavish me in a way he's always been wanting to. All I'm going to ask you to do, and I'm not making anybody, is come to the front of the room. Don't do it to make me feel better. Please don't do that. Do it because you need to work this out with the Lord. If that's you, go ahead and come on up. There's nothing worth more that will ever come close. Nothing can compare your living hope in your presence, Lord. I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves when my heart becomes free. And my shame is undone Your presence, Lord Holy Spirit Holy Spirit, you are welcome here Come flood this place and of you that received it you need to know that you're a part of the remnant you are God's called people you are a signet ring and that the very power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead sits right behind your chest that's the truth I hope this morning that we receive not the same old story that we've heard a thousand times, that we receive a revelation that God did it all. And all we have to do is receive it. May the Lord bless you. May He keep you. May His face shine ever upon you. Lord, we love you. We thank you and we bless your name. And everybody said, Amen and Amen.